0: When they see what they have done is really saving them, then I think they will look at things differently. It is our job to show that their investment has a huge ROI, and we are still provisioning and we are still providing healthcare with no issues and no interruption.
1: Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. This afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Tahir Ali. Tahir, it's a pleasure to have you. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. For those of our listeners who may not know Tahir, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Of course. I'm the Chief
0: Technology Officer and also the Chief Information Security Officer at Healthcare in
1: Monterey called Montage Health. Very cool. I'm looking forward to learning more about Montage. I've been reading up on what you guys are up to. I'm really excited about that. Before we get into anything, though, we'd like to start with one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave everyone with today. Sure. I think starting every single meeting,
0: every single conversation, either as a business partner a technologist, a vendor, or even your partner. Be more inquisitive. That would be one of the advice that I would leave our viewers with is figure out what the other person is looking for. Figure out what they want. Figure out where they want to go before you formulate your decision and your answer. A lot of us are technologists. We think very fast. We are very mathematical. So, we put two and two together very, very quickly and get an answer that we usually think is the right answer. And in our mind, we have computed so quickly that we are very sure that the answer that we're going to provide is the correct answer. But I've learned as I grew in my career that a lot of the times it's really not. And it takes a while and it takes some self reflection to figure out how you can slow yourself down and start. With more questions than delivering your answers. So, that would be one thing that I would say it's actionable, but you have to look really deep to figure out how you can act
1: on something like that. Wow. Starting off the episode with some fire there. I really had to learn that the hard way. And it took a lot of self reflection, but slowing down, restraint of needing to act. I've found that often the best solution is actually not acting in a given moment and kind of slowing down, reflecting, bouncing it off some peers, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be there when I pick it up. So really great advice. Before we get into the work you're up to at at Montage, maybe you could share a little bit about how you started out and how you got to be the technologist and, and executive that you are today. Sure. I can go all the way back to my undergraduate and then I can kind of go as far as you would like
0: I went to a SUNY Binghamton now called Binghamton University. I wanted to do double E electrical engineering. I did all my courses for mathematics. I did all my courses for physics. And then sophomore year, electromagnetism in physics, when I got in that class, I was also taking C language. And when I looked at physics and then computer science, physics was way too tough for me. That was the day I decided that, you know what? I love computers. I started doing more and more computers because my degree was really math heavy. After that, I came to New York City, started doing some computer work, went back to college to do my master's, but there was some bridge program that I had to do to do computer science master's. And I really I really learned more the second time around at NGIT because I was already in the workforce. So I can understand the stuff that I never understood the first time around when I was in school. So it really helped me figure out how operating systems work. You know, why am I learning assembly language, what registers do, why they are important. And before you know, I kind of got really into operating systems and my background is in Unix. So I started doing more Unix work, started doing more Sun Solaris work got into financial district because I was in New York, got more into Veritas, Oracle, high availability, so on and so forth. From there, finance was really up and down. They would hire 60 people. They would fire next day 80 people because it was just kind of, somebody would buy them. Um, you used to be Credit Suisse, First Boston, so on and so forth. So from there, I moved to New York Times and I built NYTimes.com. Uh-huh. I did a lot of work to make sure the digital piece of it was really solid. And now it's much different than when it started a little while ago when NY Times was NY Times. And at that time, I think it was the nine most visited site in the world back then. I don't know what it is now. So from there, I jumped to healthcare. And that was my switch from being a technologist to more of a healthcare IT specialist. I moved from New York Times to NYU Langone Medical Center. And really, my growth happened there. CIO was very gracious towards me, so he kind of got me to a place where I am today. My boss at that time was amazing. I was great in solving problems. So my boss came to me and said, you know a lot of different things. I want you to not be an admin or an engineer. I want you to become... An architect. I was like, okay. Mm. And he goes, I'll get you an assistant director position. You can get more money. I was like, okay. That's all sounds good. So two months, I became an architect at NYU langwood Medical Center. And I had, David, no idea what that meant. None whatsoever. <laughs> I was one of those guys, if you have a problem, I can solve it. And quickest on the block, if you have a problem, bam, I'll solve it very quick. Mm. Now, what is an architect? I have no idea. So I go back to my boss and I said, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you want me to do. I don't even know what an architect means. He goes, he started smiling. His name is Jim Saul. Great guy. He goes, here, tell me how you learn best. I said, I'm very academic. I like to go to school and kind of learn. He goes, okay, look at enterprise architecture. We were doing a lot of business at the time with IBM. I talked to them. They said, we have amazing program where you can take the beginner, intermediate, advanced architecture, and then there's a test that you have to take, and then you become an enterprise architect. Mm. So I started doing that. Once I understood the architecture framework, I never looked back. And then strategy and future technology, how to put the pieces together, how to talk to the business owners, how to translate what a business owner wants into technology was the start of I am today because I moved from being a hands-on engineer to a true architect and bringing different technologies together to build a strategy and vision for healthcare. From there, I came to LA, City of Hope. From there, I went as a vice president of Freighton in Milwaukee, chief technology officer. And now I have both chief technology officer and chief information security officer title at Montage held for maybe two and a half years, close to three years.
1: It's refreshing to see someone, a technologist, clearly, and a CTO that has an emphasis on architecture and strategy. Because I find so often CTOs will get stuck in the nuts and bolts of infrastructure. And having that vision, I imagine, is a huge asset to the, the organizations that you're supporting. I admire it. I love that you're You know, and this is important to me and my colleagues, you know, being a continuous learner, right? Especially with the pace at which technology is evolving and the impact that it has on the different facets of the continuum of care and healthcare. I mean, it's immense. Like the changes that we'll see and are seeing in the last couple of years to 10 years from now, it will be exponential. What would you say to hear is one of the most important things that you learned? along that journey of your career, personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? As I grew up, especially my career, I was less compassionate.
0: I was quick to judge. I was really at a different pace than a lot of people. I don't know, maybe growing up in New York, maybe having NYU, where I learned a lot of my technology background. I think I was very quick with doing things. So two things happened. I got so quick that when I got to a place, I started moving forward and I looked back and there was nobody behind me. I lost them. So number two is I had to really dig deep to understand where other people are coming from. I think both professionally and personally, I was not in tune with how other people see things. Maybe 10, 12 years ago, when I really reflected on who I am, I saw a gap where I think I told myself that I could be more compassionate. I can take a little more time to see the other side. And I think that really changed how I lead the teams now. It's very different when it was just my way or the highway. At that time, I didn't think I was wrong, but I didn't see the other side as clearly then I see it now. And I think it has really, really helped me. And again, I don't know what success is all relative. I consider myself as today a better leader than I was before I realized that you have to look at a different lens from other side that a lot of people miss.
1: and, And I was one of those people. I've been there myself. And I love that learning about how to be a compassionate leader and learning. Everyone is going through their own stuff. You know, I have no idea what that looks like for another person, but when I show up to my place of work, you know, that stuff doesn't go away. So, like, I think that's part of it, right? Like, kind of help understanding that. And in addition to that, each individual has a different set of skills, a different way they show up, right? So, how am I fostering that talent in the best way? How am I setting context so that they can strive towards that without Mandating what they do. I mean, incredibly important. Appreciate you bringing that up. What about to hear one of your biggest challenges? Maybe a moment that you had a project that failed, or a moment something like that happened, but you took away a profound lesson from the incident. So, multiple things happened in my life that have really changed
0: who I am. And I think I have learned, and I think it's a thing everybody says, but it's a cliche, but I'll say it. I've learned way more from my failures than I have from my successes, right? A lot of people say that, but you have to fail in certain things to really realize. And I have a lot of failures. in that. I think more failures than successes with personnel, with people who were reporting into me, with me being so overzealous to know the answer. People are very different. And one of the things that really happened was I had somebody working for me. It was a long time ago, over maybe 10 to 12 years ago, was working for me and I said something that they didn't like. And a third party told me, like, oh, you you said that and that person didn't like that. I was like, wow, that's really funny. I didn't mean anything by it because you know, you know what's in your heart and your brain, right? If you're being malicious, you really know. And I was legitimately not really. And then I got so carried away that I called that person maybe three, four times off hours, because I thought we were friends enough that I can call and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I think they were at a different place at that time. And that kind of didn't work out well for me because I was overzealous to really know the answer and to apologize and say, hey, you know, this is not what I was thinking. You know, I thought we are friends enough. And you and I are close. So I thought that you wouldn't. And he was at a different place at that time. So I have learned to be patient. I have learned to read the room. I have read a lot of books to understand people's body language because I never wanted that to happen again to me. I've made other mistakes, of course, but that was one of those things that still bothers me. I was not at that place where. I had the finesse, or I can intelligently really get over that hump that was, I just got almost frustrated and panicky and like, oh my God, what? And I think I've changed who I am because of that one incident. And that was between 10 to 15 years ago when I was a manager. I still think about that. I still think when I talk to people, I still think about how they, and it all comes together, having that compassion, having that understanding it, being really curious when you show up to see how they are feeling. So it it all comes together because that was, I personally believe, that was my biggest lesson as a professional or just as a human being, how other people are feeling, what place they're at, what they're going through mentally and physically at that moment, that you can really misread it and, and it can explode. That's one of those things that I have learned and I'm pretty sure I still make those mistakes. But I think it's less harsh now than it used to be.
1: 100%. One of the things that it, what you just said brings up for me is I had to learn how to sit in uncomfortability. Because my go-to is I want to fix it. I want to feel good. You know, How could I get out of this situation? And again, professionally or personally. And sometimes what the situation requires is it's just uncomfortable. And I just have to sit in it, and then I'll be on the other side of it shortly. And that's what Absolutely. my experience has shown. Absolutely. To become Teflon, to become
0: somebody who cannot be rattled quickly. And, and you can see, if we just pull back and look at the leaders of the world, big corporations, you can really tell who is Teflon and who, is, who will get you know, shaken or panicky much quicker. That's the depth that you can see in a leader that, hey, somebody can throw a question and they can be very uncomfortable and you don't see the chaos of that, them being uncomfortable. You see a very calm front or facade in front, whatever happens behind the scenes, you never see it. That is a quality of a great leader. I'm not there yet, but one day I strive to be one of those people who could get hit by something very uncomfortable, just the way you were saying, David you know, you can be uncomfortable, but you have learned to live in that space. And the more you live in that space, the smoother I think you get on the other side.
1: I agree. For me, it's a daily reprieve. Like it's a daily thing because to get there, I have to meditate. I have to be in touch with myself. I have to be mentally and physically in a good place, which takes working out and eating right and you got a family, you got this. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not like, you know, you just arrive for me one day and then you're good. Of course, it gets easier once you've gotten there. Very cool. I'm glad we discussed that. So I want to transition to the work that you're doing now. Before we do, I always just like to ask favorite book or literary piece Ooh. that you're reading now or all time, your choice. It happens to be all time my favorite
0: book. It's by Malcolm Gladwell, Blink. And he really ties the human DNA with how we really act in real life and why we see certain things and how really what happens to your brain and what happens to your body comes together. And I never thought about those things until I read the book. And for me, I take a lot from that book. Because of my past, I used to make decisions in a blink of an eye. It's really close to my heart how already things work in real life and how
1: we evolve to where we are today. So I love that It's crucial. I didn't, for example, I read something, you know, a number of months back about how the DNA of your parents and your, even your grandparents, trauma, for example, that they experience can be passed down genetically from generation to generation. So for example, my wife's grandmother, they're from Latvia, she was put in a work camp at some point. And obviously there's not much food. It's you're confined. I mean, you're in prison. Obviously it creates a scarcity mindset. That experience can be passed down through DNA. And like scientifically, I had no idea. As science develops as Technology with the science is developing.
0: We know more today than we knew even four or five years ago. What will we know in five or 10 years? You know, it's exponential. There's a lot in human brain that needs to be deciphered. I don't know if
1: we are there yet, but hopefully we'll get there soon. Agreed. So you're the CTO and C- CISO at Montage Health. Let's talk a little bit about your vision for IT and technology as it's derived from the overarching mission of the organization? Sure. You know, because I'm both
0: CTO and CISO, I have to look at, I have to be like bipolar almost because they kind of are on the other spectrum. I do very heavy work to make sure that we are secure. As you know, a lot of other people know, even top-notch companies with a whole lot of money like a casino recently got hacked in Vegas. I don't know if you heard that or not. This morning, there was news there. They have very heavy security. They were the first in cyber. They have enough financial background, but it's just a matter of time when you get there. So the first thing I have to do is make sure that our services are always available for our patients. That is non-negotiable. So what we do as the officer, the CTO, and the CISO is we want to make sure that overarching security is solid from all the way outside, all the way into a personal device or a desktop or a phone that we have provided. So we, we do that piece. And then the second piece that I have to do as a chief technology officer is, God forbid, God forbid, if something crazy happens. We have to make sure that we have a full redundancy, highly available infrastructure that we can quickly turn it on and start providing the services if our original or primary services were there. So I have to manage those two really silos very closely, keep the security top notch. If something happens, have a full redundant infrastructure that we can, with a flip of a button, we can turn. That side on and start providing the same services. Those two, balancing with the financial impact, with making sure that our clinicians, our patients keep getting the service so we can provide the service, is the most crucial
1: thing for where I sit today. So, a couple of questions have come to mind since we have a, a guest like yourself with this experience. What advice would you give to? other executives when they're trying to enroll everyone in the need for cybersecurity products and you know awareness and all of that. Obviously it could be looked at as a a sunk cost, right? You're paying to something and there's no ROI on it. How do you broach those conversations internally? I've
0: been very lucky. Our executive team, our board is very in tune with what happens out there, especially with healthcare. They see it, they hear it, you know, it's on the news, so on and so on. I am personally very thankful and I consider myself lucky. That said, my advice would be, you have to show how your security tool is working post implementation. So don't just put in a log management tool let's just say you put in a log management tool. When you have an executive meeting or when you have a board meeting, show people how it's doing. Show how many things that you have caught. Show that these were the things that we caught before it happened because the log told us that there is some weird issue or there's something happening with this particular device. And look, here it is. This is what we saw and we took it off the network. I think you know, a lot of the technologists, I'm included, are really introverts. We went to school to do mathematics, computer science. We wanted a small cube so I can type away, and I don't really want to hear anybody or talk to anybody. That's not what I want to do. I'm a computer scientist. I'm a nerd. But in this particular case, you really have to show your work. Take one product, get the approval, because you will get the approval for one product, and then show your executive team that, hey, look. Because of this product, we really saved seven different hacks or seven different breaches or four different attacks. When they see what they have done is really saving them, then I think they will look at things differently. It is our job to show that their investment has a huge ROI and we are still provisioning and we are still providing healthcare with no issues. And no interruption. If you can put those two things together in front of your board or in front of your executive team or, or whoever you report into, I think that would, you know, they say picture, it's a thousand words, you know, equals like uh, just a photo of something. You can put a graph there. You can, you can put however you like to, but show the ROI for whatever yeah. product they have approved. I think two things will happen. They would say, we made the right decision because I'm your boss. I signed. I feel good about myself because I'm the one who gave it to you. And thank you very much for showing me that I made the right decision. Let's make a couple of more decisions where I am right because I'm your boss, right? So I think it can catch on, but I am very lucky. I don't really have to deal with that. Our president is amazing. He's very, very in tune. My CIO is very in tune with the technology piece, both on the tech side, on infrastructure, on application, and on uh, cybersecurity side. So I don't have to work that hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's good. That's good advice. What about any challenges you guys are facing as an organization today?
0: You know, healthcare all around is facing the same challenges. So there's nothing I would say to you that would be different than any other healthcare IT would say. You know, baby boomers are more in the hospital. The pair mix is different and it's very challenging because of the pair mix. COVID being there and people couldn't do a lot of the elective surgery, that has taken its toll. Post-COVID, not enough people to be available to work in healthcare, that has taken its toll. People retiring, our parents worked 12 to 14 hours. We wanted to work eight hours. You know, next generation wants to work six hours, right? So again, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just how you see work-life balance is just different in different generations, and and that's okay. So I think uh, for technologists like myself and people out there, I do believe we have to figure out how to be more efficient and take those six hours of medical staff's time and make it into 10 hours of efficiency. I believe that is our challenge. How can Mm. we take six and a half, seven hours? of the total time of, let's say, a physician and have an output of eight or nine hours. That's where technology comes to play. That's where NLP comes to play. That's where AI comes to play, where you can say, okay, you know what? I can say something and it will do it and maybe make notes for me instead of me typing the notes that my dad used to do, go in and put it in a small tape recorder and then hand it over to somebody else and they're typing or them. They are typing themselves. So, I think our job now is how to use the right technology with great innovation to have an output of eight to 10 hours when somebody's working six hours with automation, with orchestration, with all these tools, with making sure that there's predictive tools that would predict, look at a trend of a clinician and predict what they would do moving forward. And then they're asking, hey, doc, from this page, of EHR, do you go to this page? Yes or no, I can quickly go ahead and autofill all those. I think those are where we got to really put our minds and our technology into to make sure we can deliver that. On the flip side is I saw this little cartoon where there's three monkeys hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil with little hands and stuff. And they say, hey, there's a fourth one that they have added where a monkey has an iPhone right in front of them. They don't hear anything, they don't see anything, and they don't want to talk to anyone, right? So that's <laughs> the fourth monkey that does all of that in one shot because they are stuck to their phone. So I believe for our patient side, we have to do more on mobile devices and much quicker than coming, waiting, calling, how long next appointment is going to be, I think if we can do more of that in more handheld with more innovative technologies integrated into what we provide to our patients, I think that is the second side of that
1: same coin. If we can manage those two, it will be all right. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's interesting too, because you know we say how with technology... One of the things I heard, for example, at Vive was no more shiny objects, right? You know, for oftentimes health systems would see an application or a product or service and of course solve the need, but it was kind of like a, either a band aid or it was just one component of a much larger conversation. And what you're talking about from kind of, we're looking inward towards how we can optimize the things that we have today. And yes, we're using technology, but we're... Integrating it, and you kind of said it before, and improving. We're looking at the workflow, and in all of that, there's significant ROI, both on the the use case of working with the patient and the folks that are working with the patient. You actually, I'm working with a payer right now who has a a use case where they want their care navigators when they're on the phone with a patient, and the patient asks a question to be able to leverage natural language processing for that answer to populate for them automatically. And we're doing that. A couple last questions for you to hear. One would be, where do you see the healthcare industry going in the future? And what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes?
0: So I think if we want to embrace newer technologies like AI, and people talk about a lot of different things, but we have to have a strategy where it really fits. Like you said earlier, really nicely. No more shiny out. So I get at least two or three calls, cold calls, every single time my phone rings that I don't know the number. I know it's somebody trying to sell me AI tool. So everybody is now on that bandwagon of AI, we can do AI. Now, AI is really a predictor. So if you provide some trending. The NLP is the same thing, right? I mean, the chat GPT is the same thing. It predicts what word comes after what, and they just consolidate that and say, this is what the answer is if you ask a question. So it just looks at all the trends, takes all the data. The more data you have, the more prediction, the more exact model it can make to predict what might happen. It could happen, it could not happen. So, when you talk to Alexa or when it predicts what you're asking, it's like, hmm, I think that's what they're asking. But the prediction is pretty solid because the model is really solid for NLP. And then they give you an answer half the time, like, what? That's not what I asked, right? Prediction is wrong. That's not what you really asked. So, I believe no one, no one, I shouldn't say no one, but we of course, has more definitive workflows than healthcare. I agree. We just really know what comes after what. So prediction can be very exact because you know how things are going to trend every single time. Now there are some nuances that Dr. Wright does it just slightly bit differently than somebody else does, and those nuances can also be fed into the AI model. If Dr. Wright is there, then you know you can switch the model just slightly better than it. I believe we can take more advantage when we say we. Healthcare can take more advantage of prediction, modeling through AI than any other industry. Maybe, like, I don't know, maybe airplanes and stuff. They also have very de- definitive rules and regulations, how they kind of follow things, right? So, if we can take a breather, get all our workflows streamlined, take those into a model, and provide automation for our clinicians. I think that will be magic. Everything Everything is available today. The workflows are available. How we do it is available. People know what they do. They've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years sometimes. We just have to make, we have to capture those and make sure that we model them correctly for almost each doctor, because EHR can even provide that to you with small nuances for the doctor. And you can automate all of that. As much as possible. And I really believe that you can do four hours with automation and deliver the work of eight to nine hours from a clinician. I think that's where the future is. But I am not sure if a lot of healthcare is looking at that.
1: Yeah, we're definitely not there yet. But I see people kind of dipping their toe in the water, but I haven't seen it really done yet. One interesting thing, you know, when I was, I spoke on a panel with Microsoft in London, and we were talking about ChatGPT and leveraging AI in and, and healthcare, and there are ways too, to build in confidence scores for the answers whereby it won't give these are internal use cases, of course, unless it's a 100 percent score. Because my concern is always like, well, you know, if you get the wrong answer, then but there are ways to set it up. So I'm excited. I agree. And I think that accomplishing that is closer or more accessible than people think. Completely agree. And today I feel like there are dot-coms and then there are hospitals.
0: Their world is very different. I think a lot of the healthcare, they don't do development in-house. So mentality is different. Let's just go get the EHR implemented. Let's go buy an application and implement it, right? So I think there is this Really dichotomy where we have to kind of figure out how to build a bridge between these sharp technologies and what we've been doing for the last 20, 30 years. If we can implement those together, I think it'd be very beneficial for both sides.
1: What you made me think of too is like almost developing a DevOps mindset. The Phoenix Project, for anyone who hasn't read it in healthcare, I think is a great place to start because while it's technically about DevOps, using that framework and those methodologies in innovating in healthcare, I think is relevant. Absolutely. 100% agree. So to hear, we're nearing the end here. I mean, this has been amazing. One of the last questions we like to ask is just if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think if I go back 10 years, I would tell myself
0: to take your time and slow down. I think that would be my advice to myself 10 years ago. Not everything requires a quick result. I think I had to change my mentality. Thankfully so that I am not at that place, but I just wish I knew that earlier that quick delivery is not always the right delivery. And I never understood that part. I just thought because my background was if it's broken, how fast you can fix it. Then I just stayed with how fast can I deliver? a solution, right? So it was very contradictory in my head. And it took me a little while to figure out, man, you can get a pizza in 30 minutes, but does it taste the greatest?
1: I doubt it, right? So, so you, you got to figure that out. It's great advice. I could have used that advice myself. So Tahir, thank you again so much for your time today. Absolutely, no worries. I'm honored to be part of this podcast. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.